0: Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast for the intellectually curious and especially for those who want to get close to the truth in science and medicine. We have conversations with leading scientists, physicians, and innovators in the spirit of educating and inspiring you to take actions today that will benefit your long-term health. The future of medicine is here and our goal is to bring it to you now. We hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, and today I'm pleased to introduce part two of our two-part series on truth tellers, where we'll be joined by players in the science and wellness world who are illuminating the ways the healthcare and food industries don't always have our best interest in mind. In this episode, we are joined by Nora Latore, CEO of Eat Real, a nonprofit that is expanding access to healthier and greener meals in schools. By 2025, Eat Real is on track to shift $1 billion of school food purchasing power to solve the root cause of the health crisis facing children. In addition to her work at Eat Real, Nora is on the Tufts Nutrition Security Council, is a California Department of Food and Agriculture advisor and is part of the Aspen Institute Socrates Scholars Program on climate change. She has contributed to the White House Hunger, Nutrition, and Health Conference and was vice president of Fair Trade. In full transparency, Eat Real is a nonprofit I was one of the founding members of over 10 years ago. Today we will discuss food education in the lunchroom, shifting our language around food, modeling good eating habits at home, and the agricultural impact of changing the purchasing power in schools. For today's conversation, we are joined by my co-host, Los Angeles pediatrician, Dr. Sarah Green.
1: Thanks for having me, I'm excited to be here.
0: Nora, thanks for joining us today. You are the mother of two small children and have always been fascinated by food nutrition. And your journey is 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 a long and winding one. Maybe a great place to start would be to tell us about your journey and how you wound up from a food and nutrition enthusiast to the CEO of a, of a national not-for-profit.
2: Incredible. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I have been dedicated to food sustainability for over 15 years and worked to advance and change our food system from a global perspective. I helped build the fair trade movement and help people feel more connected to the food products you know knowing where their coffee comes from and their tea so i worked for a long time in working with companies um, to source sustainably and to redesign our food system for the benefit of planet and the people behind their products and i helped you know really scale the conscious consumer movement and for me my nutrition journey though and kind of integrating sustainability and food sustainability and nutrition sustainability happened when i became a new mom I was very active, ultra runner, rock climber. And I became pregnant and I went to my Oakland Bay Area farmer's market and had an organic smoothie. And I went to for one of my first checkup and the doctor told me that I had high levels of sugar. And I was shocked. I said, I had this delicious smoothie. What are you talking about? And she said, "You know, did you have protein in that smoothie? Your glucose levels are high. And I realized how much I didn't know and how much I needed to learn quickly in order to really nourish myself and nourish my growing child. And I went on this deep nutrition quest um, to really arm myself and arm my family with the information that we needed to help our child develop um, and get the best start to life. And that's what led me to realizing how we don't integrate food sustainability and the health of food products with the health of human products. And we needed to take a more integrated approach. And that's when I discovered this organization, Eat Real, uh, that was really redefining our food system and setting a higher standard that integrated food sustainability, was better for the planet, and also what's better for people. And I learned that this nonprofit, the small but mighty nonprofit, was trying to do advocacy and change our food system for the health of kids. And I, I just fell in love with its potential to change the world.
0: And I'm wondering, Sarah, just from your perspective, what were the things that got you interested in pediatrics?
1: I didn't always know I wanted to be a pediatrician. Uh, my sixth grade autobiography, I wrote I was going to be a large animal veterinarian, which I joke it's not too far off, I guess, because <laughs> not all my patients can talk to me and uh, I deal with the parents, like my my friend who's a veterinarian always says she has to deal with the owners, not her, you know, not her actual uh, patients. But so I was always interested in science and math, and I, there's no doctors in my family, but I always loved kids. Um, I always babysat. Any opportunity I had to volunteer, I did at a children's hospital or with kids through college. Um, and once I got to medical school and through residency, so any I had the choice, I chose the option involving children. And I didn't know then why now. I see that to me, it's where I feel like we make the biggest impact. I feel like what I do with my patients from day one really sets them up for a lifetime of health. And we're realizing that more and more now, you know, Nora, your work to me is, that's why that what you're doing is so important. And we can study all we want about lipids and cholesterol and atherosclerosis and you know statins and reversing all these problems, but really they're starting when we're feeding our children. And Nora, I'm curious when you said you, when you were pregnant, you wanted to do this, a deep dive and learn more about nutrition. Were you also shocked to see the lack of data and the sort of lack of answers to some of your questions?
2: All around, that it wasn't included in those check-in visits, that w- that my pediatrician, once our child was born, wasn't talking to me about it, that there was a, a real gap in access and clarity to information. I wanted to be a part about making it easier for families to know how to take control of their health, how to advocate for food access, how to uh, make sure that their kids had what they needed to learn and grow and thrive. I was really concerned about the food environment my child and every child is growing up in and shocked. Really, I learned that there's, um, millennials are on track to have shorter lifespans than their parents, and I'm an elder millennial. <laughs> for the first time in US history because of processed food related disease and I thought how does no one know this and how has it been made so confusing for people and how do we fix this and then I started reading that the health stats are even worse for our children
0: So so when you say processed food disease is that in the uh medical dictionary of diseases
2: Not yet can we how do we put it there Jordan Actually, type two diabetes is a processed food disease that's 100% preventable with real foods. Like, how do we rename these diseases to not make them so confusing, like, and just call them the root cause of what they are?
0: Well, I have a question for Sarah on that front, actually, real quick, which is when I was a boy, when I was growing up as a doctor, it was called adult onset diabetes and juvenile onset diabetes. And so it was very clear which was the adult version and which was the kid one. and And the juvenile onset diabetes was typically I'll call it bad luck. You got a virus, that virus activated some antibodies in your body which attacked your own pancreas and then you couldn't make insulin and you couldn't process sugar so you had to take insulin and there was always the kid with the shot and the glucose monitor and the adult onset diabetes was always like the, the sometimes overweight but not always. They had visceral fat and they had metabolic syndrome and they ate too much, processed food. And so all of a sudden one day, I don't know, but it seems like 15 years ago, somebody flipped a switch and they called it type one and type two. And the, the rationale at the time was, well, adults can get type two. An adult can get a virus and get, so so it's a misname. And, but I thought, is that really why they're naming it like that? Or is it because there's so many kids getting an adult onset disease?
1: Yeah, exactly. We choose cutoffs and we have to choose labels in medicine um, for to be able to talk about them, to be able to research them, to be able to study them. But for me and for my patients, I don't really care if you technically meet criteria, it's a spectrum. And we know that the what's happening with a three-year-old in their, in their food is going to be affecting what's going to be happening with them as a 50-year-old. So it's it's not adult onset. Kids are, even if they don't qualify yet, they're being set up for it as an adult. So really, it's a disease of children as well. And, and it's preventable in what we're, again, what we're feeding them and and just the environment that we're we're putting
2: them in. Right now, the most recent data that I was pulling was that one in five adolescents are pre-diabetic and that actually type 2 diabetes, which used to be an adult onset, is up 76% in children during the pandemic. Like during a public health crisis and a pandemic that disproportionately impacts people with comorbidities and diabetes and obesity, et cetera, we are getting sicker and our kids are getting sicker and more diabetic and more obese. I read that 59% of today's two-year-old and my son is two are going to be obese by the time they're 35. Like American health, we are not pandemic-proofing ourselves. We are at a moment that should be a huge awakening about the importance of public health and children's health and the health of our kids. We're moving in the wrong direction
1: we often forget about the kids. It's not, it's not sexy. It's not where the pharmacy industry money is. And actually that's a question I have for you, Nora. I deal with this in my exam room and with my patients all day long, talking about trying to make this, get their kids healthier foods in a way that's accessible and attainable and realistic for families. But when I start to think outside the system that they're all up against, that I know I'm up against, I'm a working mom. I send my kids to public school and I I don't even want to know. I don't, I don't know unfortunately during COVID, i learned because they started sending home when we had to pick them up they went back for half days they started sending us home with this big plastic bag full of lunch which was great and i understood the intention was to feed the kids it's really important so many kids rely on school lunch for nutrition for calories but when i started getting that plastic bag of food home and i couldn't feed it to them i, I couldn't actually see what was in the food and give it to them for lunch. And I thought to myself, this is this is what they're getting. This is what all and more than that, this is what all the kids in this second largest public school system in the country are being fed on a daily basis. But then the next day comes, I go back to work, you know, the reality is set in and I just, it's too overwhelming for me to think about making that change. But my question to you first is how did we get here? Lunch food has never been known as sort of the best food, but there used to be a person who cooked food. There was a kitchen, <laughs> there was preparation. I have learned now that there's a microwave in my kid's school and I've seen the food, it's in plastic wrap and it's it's heated up in a microwave. So how did we get to this, this extreme place where we are today?
2: Yeah, looking at the history of nutrition security and food security in America, school lunches were created as a nutrition security measure and as a way to invest in local farmers and farm to school. So officially, the school lunch program was established in 1946 um, by President Truman. And it was, you know, a response to the Depression and the national government seeing that Americans were nutrient deficient. And they saw that the national school lunch program was a way to ensure that kids had the nutrients and nutrient dense meals that they needed to learn and focus um, and to create a more secure and happy and healthier America. And so it's early, early days. It was, you know, school lunches was designed to be a nutrition security investment in the health of our our society. What's exciting is that, yes, it passed in 1946, but there were individuals and advocates that really tried to create that work to create that legislation and that investment and raised awareness. You know, there were nurses and school teachers and the Black Panthers and there were community organizers and community members and parents and moms and dads and grandparents saying that they wanted school meals at their schools and that they wanted nutrient dense options for their kids and that good school meals were like books in a classroom or a good teacher or breaks on a school bus that they were just essential to learning. And so that program was a result of people raising their voices. And so that to me is a sign of what people can do. They can raise their voices for good policy and high standards and school meals, and they can make changes. And it's a really important safety net in America. What you're referring to, though, on the quality of the food, it can definitely be better. A lot of school lunches haven't changed much from what you're probably thinking of what you saw saw recently and then what you grew up on, what I grew up on in the Midwest, like that white bread sandwich um, with peanut butter and chicken nuggets like that. You know, a burger is still the number one item on school meals. Yet what I'm seeing is that school meals can be delicious. They can be sustainable. They can be culturally relevant. Like my favorite meals this year so far were in schools. Like I crave school lunch and it can be delicious. And what a relief for moms, for parents, for dads, for for families if they had access to that delicious, sustainable food in, in a school and they could just trust that school food was going to be setting their kids up for success and not giving them a tummy ache or stomach ulcer or, or spiking their insulin and giving them prediabetes. Like it is possible in schools. We have a school certification program where we audit the menus of schools and we help them transform their meals. So we do everything from remove 15 pounds of sugar per student per year. We remove toxic harmful ingredients, food dyes, et cetera. We add, make that burger a better burger by either adding like delicious plant-based options or minimally processed, like a Thai lentil basil burger, uh, to a grass-fed beef option that's super nutrient-dense. We just help overhaul the school food venue and really make it the best meal in town. And it is the largest restaurant chain in America. There are seven billion meals that flow through school meals to 30 million plus students. It is today and has been since 1946 a really important infrastructure in society. And if you think about it. Like I was just eating lunch in Natomas Unified, which is the third most diverse district in, Cal- in the nation. It's in California, outside of Sacramento. And they were serving like 8,000 meals a day. Like they're high volume uh, restaurants, the biggest volume. Well, I just had a follow-up question.
1: Cause I, when you talk about that I, Thai lentil burger, sounds delicious to me, that sounds expensive. So that's my first question. And my second question is I, I hear my parents saying, oh, my kid would never eat that. Now as a pediatrician and wait my house runs, that's what's served and that's what you eat and eventually usually they eat it but so is it more expensive and what's the reaction to the kids when they're processed hamburger the next day as a Thai lentil burger
2: yeah I mean it could take like 15 times of a kid trying things to expand their palate like try it it's part of its exposure right like how our our kids are getting like bok choy like they you know they're getting cauliflower tiki masala and Morgan Hill unified like it's part of it's like just giving them the exposure it is an education too on food right like we have physical education. We need food education and that we believe the school lunchroom can be the best classroom. And that is what that it can be there. And I think what actually though, like I said, I, I'm eating next to kids all the time and they're stoked on it. They're little foodies actually like a lot of them think they're top chef judges and they watch cooking channels. And as their peers are trying it and they, they watch their peers, like it's a very social environment, the school cafeteria, they start to try it. And one of the kids, I watched him eat the grass fed burger and he was, it's like this burger is the bomb this is so good and so, and then we have parents on facebook groups being like can i get that meat sandwich recipe that's a school or we have the kids going up now a bunch of our schools are adding chefs and like michelin star style chefs level chefs some of them are former michelin star chefs that are now going into schools and the kids ask those chefs like, how much would it cost for you to come cook at my family's house like they it can be that good it can be that delicious and it actually, when you think about the economics, as with what you asked about, the state of California has invested a billion dollars into school infrastructure and an additional um, reimbursements for school, which is a huge investment in re regionalizing our food system, getting more local farmers in, and that helps the schools have more money to make investments in real food. Some changes in our program don't have to cost a lot. Swapping out chocolate milk for regular milk or cutting sugar or removing those harmful ingredients that I mentioned. That's just working with 40 of their vendors. We just work with their suppliers. But what's interesting is that as some of our districts have made investments in that that higher quality food product, they actually then increase their participation because the parents trust it and the students like it. It's better. It's not this package product it's that they've smelled it being made in the cafeteria there's music playing it's a whole experience they see the chef the cool chef that's there and that actually it increases their numbers and our schools are actually making more money and are able to then reinvest that in more kitchen infrastructure so there's a real food business model that as we raise the bar and people make smart investments in better food for kids that there's there as a school food business which is actually tests being a profit center in public schools that they're able to make more money and to the tunes of millions of dollars some of these restaurants and then reinvest that and i will add there's an independent study that showed for every dollar that's invested in better school meals there are two dollars of benefits economic and health benefits so in addition to that school making more money by raising the bar and moving towards real food the kids benefit their health benefits their academic outcomes benefit and local economies, like those local farmers, et cetera, benefit. And that's not even counting the planetary benefit of reducing food waste when food tastes better, kids waste less of it. I heard
1: you say about subsidies and programs and local farmers. um, And I think I've mentioned to Jordan before, but my family is from Iowa. Both my parents are from Iowa. My mom grew up on a farm. The last time I was there, I couldn't find a whole food at a restaurant in the small town where my parents grew up. And we're surrounded by farms. And my mom said, well, yeah, the farms aren't making food anymore. That's not what the money is. That's not what the subsidies are for. They're for making fuel, for making feed for animals, not for humans. I mean, it seems so obvious to me that like just change the incentive structure, you know, agricultural economic expert, but incentivize local farmers to, you know, provide food for humans, for our children. And then our kids are gonna be getting, you know, locally grown food.
2: Yes. And what you're talking about of incentivizing farmers and investing in farmers and local farmers is key in one of our advocacy platforms. The farm bill is coming under review and that is one of the largest agricultural pieces of legislation in our country. And today we subsidize corn, wheat, soy, sugar, which goes into processed food and 67% of kids' calories are ultra-processed food calories, as we mentioned. So we're subsidizing disease in America and we need to think about instead of subsidizing those ingredients that go into ultra-processed food and to feed, as you're talking about, how do we subsidize vegetables and invest in vegetables? Only 7% of kids Get the daily amount of recommended vegetables that they need. Our kids are nutrient deficient. 93% of Americans are cardiometabolically sick. Only 7% of Americans are walking around feeling good. Like we are not subsidizing and making real food affordable and real ingredients and fruits and vegetables available. And if we subsidize those, they would be cheaper and more people would have access and then they'd be able to eat it and we'd all feel better.
0: Uh, A subsidy is, is our tax dollars going to work, right? So a subsidy is basically a tax, Like we pay tax so that we can make something cheaper. So we make something cheaper so people can be more unhealthy. If people are more unhealthy, our health care costs go up. And that's like another tax because we all have to pay as it's collective good or it's a collective issue health insurance. So when the health rates go up, it's because lots of people got sicker and the cost of care went up. And if you just go to the root of these issues, if you just killed the subsidies or repointed the subsidies in the direction to make people healthier, imagine if you took the tax dollars we had and it made our healthcare costs go down. Obviously, cure and prevention is a bad business model for the medical industrial complex. And so it's this cycle of like pharma and agriculture all make money while the kids suffer. And if they're unhealthy in school, and they have low grade inflammation which leads to cardiometabolic disease diabetes all these things your cognitive abilities are probably diminished so you're not going to do well in school you don't do well in school you can't get a good job and then you wind up you know on medicare uh, i'm sorry on medical or, or or one of these programs that like we have to subsidize your future health and your life so it seems to me like this is a critical path root cause issue that if we solved subsidies if we solved school meals we could actually create a whole generation of health.
2: First, I wanna to touch on your comment about how much we spend in terms of healthcare. So today in America, we're spending about $4 trillion on healthcare and 70% of that is processed food related disease. And it's about 18% of our GDP. So this is a very expensive problem. We subsidize the wrong ingredients that then give people disease. And then we pay for those diseases. And then also the number one cause of cycles of poverty in America is unpaid medical debt. and the number one cause of unpaid medical debt is processed food related disease. So, this is a driving sickness in America. This is a huge problem, and the, the solution is more real food upstream, to, to your point.
0: Thinking about the resistance in the circuit, like when you go to a school and you say, Hey, we want to remove this or add this, what, what is the most common resistance you get and from whom?
2: It's nonpartisan to want better food for kids and have healthy kids. So, generally, the response is really positive. We have 2,000 schools on our wait list. In three years, we went from 50 to 537 schools. And we have people reaching out all across the country and now the world saying, I want this in my school. So overwhelmingly, the response to our program is positive, And the kids like it. It's more delicious. They're lighting up. The teachers are positive. The nurses are reporting fewer visits. The Administrators, the superintendent, people are loving it, which is really exciting. Of course, there's some pushback. Change is hard. And when you've been getting a certain thing, it's hard. And so we work with our community leaders, and they know their communities best. So we work with them to introduce it in a way and these new foods, and to make changes in a way in a gradual way that works for them. And so our program is not one size fits all, we really customize based on that local community so that it's very well received. I will say that it takes education and awareness building, which is why, you know, we're doing that work in parallel, because how do we let the parents know the reasons why we're doing this and like and sharing the health realities of their communities that they might not know? Like I didn't know a lot of it is parent education and teaching the staff members why we're doing this. Otherwise it's like, you're asking me to cut all these extra pieces of fruit. Why don't we just use the fruit flavoring, right? So we, it does take a lot of education and education is a lot of what we're doing and engagement and helping them celebrate it and be a part of it and focusing really on what we're giving the kids, not what we're taking away. Because when you focus on that, it's really well received.
1: And that's what I tell I tell patients all the time and parents. It's what you call a treat in what you frame as a treat. I mean, we all know when we have one year olds and two year olds, you know, a bowl of berries is like a special treat. And then, so there's a change that happens and I find it's often around preschool, school age, when kids start going to birthday parties and going more into the stores and then it's the parents end up being the sugar, someone has to be the sugar police. And I find that parents are thrilled when it doesn't have to be them. And so to send my kids into an environment where somebody else has already done the work where they're learning and their the social pressure's changing. It will you know, I just feel like the whole culture in that those communities that you're in, Nora, must be different around food and nutrition.
2: A treat here or there is fine. And then to make it special, like versus what I grew up on, which was like a treat after you ate lunch and then a treat for snack and then a treat, you know, like treat, 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 treats all the time. And so it's really about just making it special and then changing the definition of treats, like that local peach from that farmer and having that farmer come into the school and share that delicious local peach season.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I remember at Halloween one time, we were growing strawberries in our backyard. We had a couple left over and my daughter brought a candy from her Halloween basket that was in a wrapper that looked like a strawberry. It was a red wrapper and this twisty part at the top was green and it had little black spots and it, and it looked like a strawberry. And so I sat her down and I said, okay, I want to show you something. So I pulled a strawberry out of the garden. I'm like, this is a real strawberry and this is a fake strawberry. And this strawberry was made from sunlight, water, and soil. And, and that's it. This one was made from chemicals, which I don't know where they came from. And they came from, they were on a truck that used gas. And this one's going to cause your body great harm once it goes inside because your body's not going to understand what it is. There's no fiber. Your blood sugar is going to spike. You're going to feel great for a few seconds. And so my, so my daughter looked at me. And she goes, so I sh- shouldn't eat this. I should eat this one. I said, taste the strawberry. So she tasted the strawberry. It's super sweet. It was like the same sweet. But when you're presented with the candy, which is obviously cheaper and more ubiquitous, and you don't have the ability to do like the side-by-side comparison. And you actually have to eat the strawberry first because once you eat the candy first, your tongue and your mouth is so overwhelmed with sugar that the strawberry will taste not good.
1: To your point about that is that our kids have had so much of the fake strawberry and the fake sugar and the strawberry flavoring that their palates do actually change. And there are studies that show that your palate does change.
0: Yeah, exactly. But I wanna go back to this concept of snacks and desserts because if you, when my kid, <laughs> you know, said, I want the yo play with the, or the yogurt with the, with the flavor in it. I'm like, okay, that's a candy bar in yogurt. So that's dessert. Oh, the ketchup that you want to put on your hamburger has tons of sugar in it. So that ketchup is dessert. And if you start labeling all the things with sugar in it as dessert, instead of food, you start to say, okay, so you're having dessert for breakfast. You're having dessert for snack. You're having dessert for lunch. You're having dessert for the drink. With lunch and you're having dessert for dinner, and then you're having dessert. So I really feel like we have to be intellectually honest here and say if it has added sugar in it without fiber, it's just dessert. It's not yogurt.
1: It's a challenge, though, I will say, because there's a lot of movement on taking judgment out of eating, and that's a whole other topic. And, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics just came out with some new guidelines that are sort of fraught with judgment. It's a challenging topic of how do you make food um, take the pressure off of eating and not make it stressful and make eating enjoyable, but also be honest to your point, Jordan, about what is real food that nourishes your body and helps your muscles and is good for your brain and what is not real food and what is hurting your liver and hurting your heart. And I always tell parents, look, if you're going to have a treat, enjoy it. You know, like sometimes you're going to have a slice of birthday cake and it should be delicious and you should sit down and you should enjoy it.
2: One of our board members shared with me calling them sometimes foods and always food.
1: We use those words too. Yeah. But you want to be careful not to call the birthday cake a special treat, because sometimes people will say, oh, we'd we'd only have one special treat a day. It's like, well, why can't the fresh strawberries for breakfast be a special treat? It is hard, and the the words we use is uh, a challenge.